Hello and welcome to another episode of For the Love of Sports. Today, my special guest is Adam Rubin. He is the Associate Athletic Director for Strategic Communications at Stony Brook University. But where I fell in love with what Adam does is as the beat writer for the Mets. He covered the Mets for many, many years, well over 10 uh, for ESPN, for the New York Daily News. And he has an awesome career in sports and what he's done. So I've been following Adam because of the Mets, but now what he's doing with Stony Brook I think is very interesting as well. But it was a lot of fun to learn about what he's doing and how he's doing it. And I hope you all enjoy this conversation with Adam Rubin. Cool. All right. Today, my guest is Adam Rubin. He's the Associate Athletic Director for Strategic Communications at Stony Brook University, formerly of NYIT, as the Assistant Athletic Director of Strategic Communications. And many of us out there might know him as the ESPN reporter that was covering the Mets for, gosh, like eight, nine years, if I'm not mistaken, even if not a little bit longer, as well as a sports writer for the New York Daily News. And all the way back in 05, a staff writer for the Birmingham News down in Alabama. Adam, appreciate you hanging out with me today, man. My pleasure. Wonderful, wonderful. All right, so the first question for everybody on the For the Love of Sports podcast is, why do you love sports so much? Well, obviously, when you grow up around it, you have an affinity uh, for the game. I grew up a big hockey fan, actually not baseball fan. Grew up with uh, my family sharing season tickets to the Islanders, so got hooked by that. Uh, Mike Bossy and, and that crew won the Stanley Cup from 80 to 83, four straight years while mm-hmm. I was uh, kind of young and impressionable. So uh, that hooked me on particularly hockey, but, but sports in general. I love it, man. Yeah, everybody, uh, all the kids like rooting for a winner, right? That's how you see so many LeBron and Golden State Warriors fans now. Um, it's, always, it's always a little bit easier to root for someone that's good, especially, you know, me being a Mets fan. Exactly. Uh, it is what it is, I guess. So you got, your, you got an economics degree from Wharton, um, which is a very impressive school. I'm up here in the Northeast, so I'm very familiar with UPenn and everything they got going on, which then led you to become a staff writer at the Birmingham News in Alabama. I'm sure there's a real interesting story behind that one. Yeah, well, obviously, as you mentioned, I went to business, the, the business school at the University of Pennsylvania and majored in economics, did my concentration in marketing. But I had joined, because I like sports, my college paper when I got onto campus as a, as a freshman. And originally I joined it because I like sports, but I got more and more hooked by the journalism story. I started getting internships, started getting internships in journalism as opposed to uh, the business world. Uh, so it was kind of a natural segue to enter journalism after, after college. I had interned at that paper the fall semester of my junior year, left college for a semester at Penn, took leave of absence, uh, took some classes at UAB that transferred back so I could graduate on time. And uh, that's the paper that rehired me when I graduated. It was great timing because I graduated in 1995 uh, and the Olympics were in Atlanta. And actually the soccer was in Birmingham in 1996. So right out of college, I was covering uh, the Olympics. Uh, I was assigned to the U.S. men's soccer team, got to follow them around for a year before the Olympics and then cover them in the Olympics. So it was uh, right out of college. It was just a a fascinating time to to be in Birmingham and, and really exciting. That is awesome, man. Yeah, I guess I didn't put two and two together with the Olympics down, being down there in, in Alabama or, well, in Atlanta and being right in the area. So that must have been absolutely incredible. And as you said, the timing was just right. I guess during your time at Wharton, at what point did you finally realize, like, as you said, you joined the paper and you're having a lot of fun with it and starting getting those internships. At what, pa- what, what point did you realize, like, oh, shoot, like maybe, maybe economics and marketing isn't, isn't the exact way, uh, isn't the exact career path I'm on anymore? Well, my first internship between my freshman and my sophomore year was actually kind of a blend of, of sports and business. Uh, I interned on the, at WFAN, the sports radio station in New York, but on the, on the sales and development side. Uh, but after that, the, the internships were strictly journalism. I still remember I worked for a, a, a group of weekly papers on the south shore of Long Island where I grew up called the Long Island News Group. Uh, worked on the on the news side there one summer and then the Birmingham internship. So by the time I got the Birmingham internship, it was pretty clear I was going to go into journalism as opposed to uh, like some pure business uh, job like other Wharton grads were doing. But I, I will say this, that 
And if there's anyone interested in, in sports writing or, or sports journalism, you really do not need uh, an education, uh, a journalism education at all, unless you're trying to get into it late and just have no experience. If, if you join your college paper or college radio station or college TV station uh, and you get a lot of reps with internships, uh, it's actually beneficial to major in something else. I, I really believe the, the, the business education helped me uh, immensely in terms of stories I did all the way from Birmingham to when I was covering the, the Mets. I mean, I, I followed all the Madoff stuff with the Mets for, uh, for a while uh, and was very competitive with, with business reporters from the Wall Street Journal and New York Times. That is pretty cool. Yeah, I guess you can, you can tout the same, same type of degree they have. Uh, I think that that's really interesting saying that. I mean, I'm, I'm sure, again, you know, it, everyone's case is a little different. Um, but, you know, you're specifically, as you said, you know, just joining the paper was enough to really help you cut your teeth a little bit and get, get what you needed and understand how you could go about the, the journalism space, especially in sports. So after about five years down in Alabama, you got the opportunity to work at the Daily News, or at least you earned the opportunity to work here up, up in New York City uh, with the Daily News. I guess, how did um, that opportunity come about? I mean, obviously, you're from the area, but how did the opportunity come about and how do you kind of stack your resume to show you know, going from Alabama to, you know, New York City, I'm, the markets are a little different, you know, and the opportunity that comes with it. How do you get that type of job? Sure, because the financial state of newspapers now, a lot of times they're hiring people right out of school, even in big markets and assigning them to, to major league teams. When I started uh, in the 90s, uh, it was very much like TV where you had to work in a smaller market and, and work your way up. Not that Birmingham was a small market by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, the Birmingham News Circulation, when I started, there was probably 160, 170,000 papers sold per day during the week and 200,000 on Sunday, which is larger than the New York Daily News is today, <laughs> uh, which is a commentary on, on the state of, of journalism. Yeah. Uh, actually, the Birmingham paper today is uh, only three times a week and the other Birmingham paper is out of business. So it's, it's obviously a, a tough industry right now financially. Uh, but basically you cut your teeth in a, in a smaller market. Uh, you send your clips to and try to build relationships with people at, at bigger papers and, and get noticed really I, it, it, your whole body of work obviously speaks for itself, but you, you send what are called clips, your, your five, six, seven, ten best articles. So if you have a really good uh, collection of, of high end clips, uh, then it really opens the door. I still remember some of the stories I did in Birmingham that, that opened the, the, the avenue for me to get to the New York Daily News were uh, a story I collected all the tax returns from all the Division One conferences and and ranked them in terms of, of revenue and and uh, and things like that and commissioner salaries and it was a time before now it's pretty easy to collect the, the tax returns online but but back then it was a, a little more challenging or I had interviewed a former Alabama quarterback who had been in jail for uh, something related to, to drugs and, and did a profile of him that was, was pretty good. So things like that uh, opened the eyes of, of people in, in bigger markets. And what was it like covering, you know, Alabama and, and Auburn and the SEC rivalries, especially in football season? That must have been yeah. nuts. Well, I, I had interned there when I was 19 years old as a fall semester my junior year, and they treated me like a regular staff reporter. So I'm going to Alabama and, and Auburn games with Terry Bowden and, and, and I guess, the beginning, I think it was Gene Stallings still the coach. And then when I was a full-time writer, there was uh, Mike DuBose, the coach, and there's 80,000 people in the stands. It's uh, it was, it was pretty amazing. Uh, at, at the time, uh, I'm trying to think of who the quarterbacks were in the league at that time in the SEC. Rex Grossman was at Florida at the time. Uh, it was, uh, it was uh, pretty exciting uh, covering that and, and going on the road to all the road SEC stadiums too. So I was never the beat writer for Alabama or Auburn. I, uh, I, I, when I was the beat reporter, uh, I was covering UAB, but I helped out immensely uh, early on in my career in Birmingham uh, with the uh, SEC coverage, including like writing the weekly SEC roundup and stuff like that. That is awesome, man. Yeah, I, I could only imagine at 19 years old going into those those environments and, and uh, not, not, not being able to really, I mean, so you get to watch the game, right? But at the same time, you have to look at it through the lens of writing an article. So at what point did you kind of disconnect being a fan of sports to the, the journalism aspect and making sure that you're covering the teams and, and, you know, getting the articles that you need to do. It's it actually dates back even to my college paper where, and I was at Penn at a time when the football and the, the basketball teams were absolutely amazing. The football team, Mark DeRosa, who went on to play for the Atlanta Braves was the quarterback uh, and Penn won the last 21 straight games. I was there overall uh, the basketball team, uh, had Jerome Allen and Matt Maloney in the backcourt and both went to the uh, NBA uh, and the 
Penn at the time won the final 43 straight Ivy League games. I was there 14-0, three straight years, went to three straight NCAA tournaments. Uh, so obviously you could get caught up in that as a, as a fan. Uh, but when you're the sports editor of the, the college paper, uh, you got to divorce yourself a, a little bit from being the rah-rah guy and, and treat your treat it like you're a reporter covering it much more objectively. So uh, it's a little different at a college paper. There's a little more opportunity to be rah-rah. But even back then, uh, I think I had started to kind of divorce the emotions from it and, and treat it more like a, an opportunity in a, in a sports reporting role, a real sports reporting role. And I think that's really important for people to understand because, if, you know, getting into the, the, the business of sports, many times you do have to, as you put it very, very eloquently, you have to divorce yourself from being a fan and really, again, have to look at it from the business opportunity, from a reporting role to make sure that, you know, especially now with the internet and how it works, um, you know, make sure you're not getting death threats constantly about being one side or the other, but I'm sure that happens anyway. Um, so you're at the, the Daily News for, what was it, about 10 years? Yeah, 2010 to, 2000 to 2010, correct, yeah. And so how, who, what were you covering while you were there? Well, it's, it's funny. I started what was called a general assignment role, GA, they call it in, in journalism. And basically, you're kind of the substitute teacher because everyone doesn't work every day of the week. So at the time, Rich Samini was covering the Jets. So Rich may be off on Fridays because he's working on Sundays and stuff. So I would cover the Jets practice for him on Friday. Frank Isola was the Knicks writer. So they send multiple people to a game. So I would be the second person helping Frank Isola at the, the Nick game, or he couldn't make a road trip to Boston. I remember on short notice, I had to go to Boston, cover the Knicks for him. Uh, and then over time, uh, they ultimately assign you to a, a beat. And it's funny, you would think everyone would clamor to cover a baseball beat, uh, but they looked around the newsroom and no one wanted to cover the, uh, the Mets beat. This was uh, TJ Quinn was, was moving off the, the beat at the Daily News to be an investigative reporter. He ended up going to ESPN in an investigative role. But at the time, no one wanted to replace him on the Daily News staff. And there were 30 sports writers at the time, and no one wanted to replace him uh, on the Mets beat. So they looked at the person who was younger, younger, not young, and, and single, uh, and said, you're going to be the one who's, who's covering the, the Mets. And just to backtrack a little bit, the reason people don't want to be on a baseball beat particularly is because I was literally covering the Mets for 15 years on the road for 170 plus days a year and working nights and weekends. So, uh, and then free agency, you see how Scott Boris takes free agency from one winter into the next spring training. People are still free agents, even the spring training starting. So there's, there's never an off season. I mean, the baseball season goes till November 1st as it is this year might even go longer. <laughs> and, yeah. and, and then uh, free agency goes right into spring training. So there's, there's never, absolutely never a lull. Yeah, it's um, and that makes sense when you say it from that aspect. You know, I know people, <clears throat> excuse me, that work for the Yankees, that work for the Mets, and you know, again, it's it's one thing if you love the team, but then as we talked about already, you kind of have to divorce that emotion a little bit, and you have to divorce that fandom. So that kind of takes away from it. And then, as you said, you're on the road for 170 days a year, which isn't very easy for anybody, uh, single, not single, young, old, it doesn't matter. Uh, so just having that opportunity, I'm sure, I mean, you did it for 15 years, so kudos to you, man. That's absolutely incredible. Um, but at the same time, I could see that just being an absolute grind. And I mean, again, in the beginning, it was probably fun and interesting. And then after a while, you know, it's one of those things where you do something you love so much, it starts to become work. So not only do you not enjoy it anymore, that being, you know, watching the Mets or just watching baseball in general, but then also it becomes a negative and that kind of starts to like drain on you a little bit. Did that, you know, obviously again, you did it for so long at the daily news. I mean, did they pretty much just say, Hey, you got it. And then, so you just started it up like how, how does that process work like how do you then start to build relationship with the coaches and the the team and really get to gain their trust so that you get all the news and all the information that you need well when you get assigned to a a, a major league beat you're going to get no matter how hard you work you're going to get beat on stories early on you just have to resign yourself to the, to the fact because people have sources that they've known for 20 30 years in fact it's changed a lot where beats turn over a lot more but in that era particularly there were guys like Marty Noble from who was at Newsday passed away, unfortunately. Uh, and, and other beat reporters who covered teams for 20, 30 plus years in different markets. And so they, they really knew everybody on the team. So it, it takes a while, no matter how hard you work to build up the sources, to be competitive. Obviously when I was at the daily news, I was blessed with having a, a big staff of, of, of veteran baseball reporters, guys like Bill Madden and John Harper who were really plugged in. So uh, they would help me out early on and, and make me look good by uh, just 
giving me tips that they had heard so I could, I could write it in my, my own words or just get it confirmed. But if they said it, it was part of the same team. So just write it without them being, uh, being part of it. So that was helpful early on. And then you just grind it out and you meet more people. You, I, I went to minor league games on my off days, even though the workload was so extreme, just so I could meet the minor leaguers uh, before they got to the, the major league level. Because when they walk in that major league clubhouse and there's 30 guys 30 reporters in the, in the clubhouse, you want to be the one they, they recognize and feel comfortable with uh, before they, they know everybody else. Uh, during spring training, I would stay in the same hotel with scouts and just uh, have breakfast with them every morning and spend as much time as I could with the scouts. Uh, and they would help you during, during trade time or whenever they could. So uh, you just kept building relationships, building relationships. You go to the GM meetings the first year, the winter meetings the first year, and you would call some agents on the phone, but you don't know what, it, and it's a little easier now because you have the internet and, and, and where everyone's headshots there, but still, if you don't know the people, it's one thing to have called them up or emailed them on the phone or texted them, but now you have to recognize the people in the lobby, agents walking through and quickly figure out who they are so you could talk to them. So it, it's pretty difficult early on until you get kind of a comfort level and people know who you are. And as we said, you, you did that for about 15 years, um, switching over to ESPN at one point. Why, uh, why the switch out of curiosity, you know, moving from one entity to another, staying on pretty much the same, um, pretty much staying at the same position, right? Still covering the Mets, still beat reporting. I'm sure there's more opportunities at ESPN with, uh, you know, I know you were on um, yeah, was, seven and keep going, yeah, sorry. Yeah, the, I'm sorry. No, the job was, was basically identical. In fact, you would think ESPN, there's more of a kind of a TV role, but at the daily news by the, by the end, things that evolved so much that you were still doing the same internet content. Uh, SNY had an agreement with the daily news. You were on daily news live. So uh, it might be different news outlets. Uh, I was on WFAN a fair amount when I was at the daily news. So it might be different, different outlets, but it was the, this almost the same exact role. My sports editor, Leon Carter uh, had been hired uh, it, it's funny, Matt Marone, who also joined us from the Daily News at ESPN, tweeted yet that uh, yesterday, uh, April 1st, was the, uh, was the 10-year anniversary of the launch of ESPN New York. Leon Carter, the sports editor of the Daily News, was hired to uh, lead the Daily News and start up ESPN New York. And he brought along a fair amount of Daily News people with him who were people who are still at ESPN and, and in very high roles. Uh, Rich Zimini is still covering the Jets, I believe, for for ESPN and uh, Om Young Masuk, I think he's now uh, more of an NBA person. But I think he was he was hired to do uh, the Giants. I want to say at the at the time uh, from the Daily News, and, and Leon hired me also. So uh, obviously there was an allure with ESPN. ESPN was, was throwing around a, a fair amount of money at the time, also. So uh, that, that was uh, that was that was nice to uh, to be courted and, and get a substantial raise. But uh, and then spent uh, another eight years at uh, ESPN before kind of ESPN dismantled the baseball coverage. Yeah, that's I hate ESPN for that. And I'm going to continue to hate them for that. But while you're there, I mean, you had some pretty, uh, you know, the Mets are going to be the Mets, and they're always going to be the Mets. And I trade on hope and I trade on despair. And it is what it is. Uh, just just a couple of the years you were there, we were talking about before we got on, you had the two major collapses, 07 and 08. You also had the World Series run in, in 2015. And being around a team for so long, and again, not being a fan, but I have to assume, you know, getting, building a relationship with these guys, what is it like when they're going through this and, you, you know, your season then gets extended in some of these opportunities? Like how, again, how do you kind of disconnect the relationship with the players to make sure that you're being that, you know, objective voice, you know, on Twitter, especially in, in 2015, to make sure that people know that you're going to give them the right information, you're going to be honest and truthful, but at the same time knowing like, man, like, oh, seven and oh, eight everybody out there was crying. And in 2015, I mean, I shed a tear when they lost, but like, what are those runs and, and, you know, peaks and valleys like, and still needing to kind of stay objective? Well, we've harped multiple times on the fact that you're not a fan if you're a reporter, but that said, you're, you're still human. So what, hap what ends up happening for a lot of people, not just me, is that at least privately, some guys are very nice to you. A few guys are, are not as nice. And then people get dispersed all over the league because of trades and free agency. So instead of rooting for a team, which you would never do, just internally when, when certain guys do well, whether they're on the Mets or, or they used to be on the Mets and you know them and they're now elsewhere, when they do well, I mean, obviously you're human. So internally uh, it, it pleases you when, when those people do well. So, uh, but you never let people know in your writing what your personal feelings are, but we all come with biases and, and, and things like that. And then uh, as far as the highs and the, the lows of seasons, the, the, the thing that, that 
reporters always root for are quick games, they say, and yeah. uh, good, good storylines. The, the worst thing to have people always say is, is a 500 team that's just kind of plotting around. They're neither good nor bad. Uh, the extremes are, are always much better in terms of rich storylines. Not that it's fun to cover, to see people uh, going through not discomfort, but like act bad seasons and stuff like that and managerial searches and, and people getting fired and things like that. But uh, the dramatics of, of the highs and the lows are, are much more compelling for people to read. And the audiences are, are higher those years than there are when the teams are just plodding along at 500. And what uh, specifically those, those few years that I pointed out, I mean, what, what do you remember maybe, you know, from either, either 07 or 08, again, those, those major collapses and then the run in, in, uh, in 2015? Well, I mean, as far as 2015, the, the thing I remember most is, is being in, in Wrigley Field uh, after the Mets had, had won that series and David Wright underneath the bowels of Wrigley Field and just how happy he was. Uh, I, it just, I, I still not get emotional, but just I, I, I really remember where he was standing and I, I still remember just I've never seen him smile and he always smiles and I've never seen him uh, as happy as, as, as that day. Uh, I think the, uh, the, the only other time was that there's a famous photo of, of him and Jose Reyes chomping on a cigar, I guess, when they, uh, when they clinched what was, it must have been 06 then. Uh, but, uh, but yeah, it, it, it's just because uh, uh, Dave and I go, we, we went, our careers kind of, our arcs kind of followed each other, paralleled each other in terms of he, he broke into the majors, I think, in 2004, and I started covering the team part-time 2002, full-time in, in 2003. So I knew him when he was like an A-ball uh, all the way to kind of our careers kind of in baseball at least ended uh, at about the same time. So uh, that was really, really pleasing. And then on the, on the other side, uh, I mean, the, the lasting memory of, of 08 was just the, the it was because it was the last day at Shea also, uh, just that they had that ceremony after the game. Uh, I mean, I, I, you're, you're laughing a little bit. I'm, I'm smirking, although you can't see it. But, I mean, it's just you sometimes you just got to laugh at, at, at the absurdity of, of, of some things. And, uh, I mean, I felt really bad for, for the players. Uh, uh, I mean, Tom Glavin, that, that last game that year, uh, I forgot. Actually, no, I forget if it's 07 or 08 with Glavin. But, uh, uh, I guess they're kind of similar storylines. Uh, but, the, 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 but then again, I mean, I think about the, the team to beat one with Jimmy Rollins and the Phillies, which I guess was, was the 07 one. Uh, if, I'm, if I'm remembering correctly. And uh, that was, they were up seven games with, with 17 to go. And just watching that erode and that storyline uh, uh, develop was, was, I mean, you had a front row seat to it. It may not have been the most pleasurable thing from a Mets perspective, but to have a front row seat to that was, was pretty amazing to see the behind the scenes stuff going on at the time. Yeah, I could only imagine what was going on behind the scenes. And yeah, 07 is the, the seven game lead with how you know, 17 left or whatever that number was. I just remember, you know, it's like, awesome, you know, where we have seven game lead there's there's only so many opportunities to lose left um and yeah they uh they did an incredible job and i i just remember that you know i think pedro was on that team too it was just it was just crazy um and yeah as you were saying before from a storyline perspective you love the highs and you love the lows and uh the middle is kind of where it where it's worst and that must have just been an insane probably what three week stretch maybe a little bit more than 21 days just kind of seeing kind of all that unfold. And then once it got to like three, four games, everyone started to get really uncomfortable. And then any, you pretty much ask any Mets fan. Um, they, I was under the assumption that, yeah, once it got down that low, that they were going to lose it. And lo and behold, that's, that's being a Mets fan. So uh, that's, that's enough on the Mets, I guess. I just have one last question on, on, I guess, beat reporting in general. Um, sources. Everybody talks about sources. Some people are like, oh, you need two, you need this. As you said, you have to develop relationships with the agents. You develop relationships with front office members, the players. Where do sources come from? And, and how, how, like, I mean, you're putting your name on the line if someone gives you information, right? So how, like, are there people you trust a little bit more and people that kind of are 50-50 on some of this stuff? Like, how, how does that whole, like, kind of, it's like a shadow industry almost. Like, we all know about it but I don't think many fans really know how it works that well. Yeah. It's uh that was the thing that made me most uncomfortable. Not the, not the team calling you up uh, an hour before they're going to send out a press release and, and telling you something. Cause obviously, you know, that's true. But the thing that I was always uncomfortable about is, is the rumors at the winter meetings, perspective trades, things like that. So you'll have a scout come up to you that, you know, and say, Hey, I heard this. Uh, and so you're weighing whether you're going with that or you need a second person. But 
I found for the most part, I had a, a very, very, very high degree of accuracy because I had long, before I would go with something from someone, I had a, a long relationship and a, and a track record with that person so I could rely on that information and, and know it was going to be true uh, to put my name and my reputation at, at stake. The thing I was always uncomfortable with is, is why are people telling me these things? Because uh, in order for it to be a, in order for you to get information from them, I feel like I have to give them something back. So it's, it's got to be a mutually beneficial relationship. And, and like what would happen with the scouts is I would help them a fair amount in, in spring training where even silly stuff, like if they're, because the, scouts are assigned to multiple teams. So they need to know who's pitching for a team one day so they could cover the guys they hadn't covered before. And that stuff, I have that information uh, where it may be available somewhere, but it's just easier for them to call me and say, Hey, who's pitching tomorrow for the, the Mets? I need to know if I need to go there. I need to go to Jupiter and see the, the Marlins play in, instead or whatever. So there's, there's things like that. And then, I mean, there's some people who just genuinely want to be helpful. I mean, we talk about uh, me being on the road 170 days a year, the scouts have no home games basically. So they might be on the road 200 plus days a year. Cause, and then they'll go to the Dominican for winter ball and things like that. So, uh, it's a, it's an interesting profession. Uh, agents have multiple reasons. I mean, you may, you may be really good. Like I always wrote minor league reports and always mentioned their minor league clients. So when it was time for someone to help me with a major league client, they knew all the stuff I had done promoting their minor. Not, and when I'm saying promoting, I mean, writing about them, but it ended up being promotion on their end for their minor league clients. So they would end up helping me out uh, with their, with their major league clients. Uh, but then uh, there, there are some people who, would write stories that agents wrote that agents told them that were were wrong and, and they may have suspected it's wrong, but they wrote it anyway because it would drive up the bidding for that client. So uh, you have to have the right motivations with it. But uh, I mean, certainly uh, it, it's a, in some ways it's a two way street why people give you information, but I always felt I was getting more out of those relationships than I was giving. That's really interesting. Um, and I appreciate you kind of diving into that a little bit. And then I guess just one more question on that. So I apologize. I lied. What is the affinity with, breaking stories first um you know just with the nfl you know you have Schefter and you have ian rapaport and they're always one and two and they always are it seems like have the same information from the same people and one comes out 10 seconds later like what is it about breaking these stories that you as a beat reporter or, or a journalist and especially over time being twitter did not really existing back in you know 06 or whatever when you were covering the team it was there but nobody cared to what it is now like why, why do you guys care so much about that? <laughs> uh, you guys is a broad brush. Okay. Uh, sorry. Yes. <laughs> I apologize. I apologize. I'm kidding. Uh, well, when I started, obviously you were at newspapers and either you had in the newspaper or you didn't have in the newspaper. And if there was an internet site, people weren't going to it yet. So it was rudimentary or didn't exist. So if you had a story and no one else had the story that day, you had 24, it was basically a 24 hour scoop, uh, over time, it's obviously eroded to where if I'm looking at my, my phone every second of every day and see what Ken Rosenthal and John Heyman and those guys are tweeting, I could catch up a minute later. So I think there's still prestige in, in breaking a story. And if, if you're a journalist, your DNA is you want to break, you want to break things. The importance, and I do think people know generally who has the information first and the information, but it has to be reliable information. So I think there is a, a value in it, uh, but I, I think it's, it's, wane so much because you can catch up uh, a minute later and, and get things confirmed. I still remember the last story we held at the, the, the daily news uh, was, and when I speak to journalism classes, I tell this story all the time, although it's getting a little dated now. Uh, 2005, uh, if you remember, Pedro uh, Martinez and Carlos Beltran signed with the Mets, but Carlos Delgado ended up signing with the, the Marlins instead. There was the whole big thing with the agent and David Sloan and, and things like that. Uh, and then, but ultimately, right before Thanksgiving that year, that same seat after that season, uh, Delgado gets traded to the Mets. I had that information at like two or three in the afternoon, a couple days or a day before Thanksgiving. Uh, it must have been a couple days before Thanksgiving. And I, I Leon Carr, the person who ended up going to the ESPN and, and hire me at ESPN, uh, I asked him at two or three in the afternoon, do you want to try to hold this for the next day's paper uh, that, that the Mets are going to acquire Carlos Delgado from the Marlins? Or do we want to just put it on the internet right now? And this is 2005. And he said, I don't know if he said formally, let's roll the dice, but we decided to, to roll the dice. We don't think anyone else is going to get this information. Uh, and we scooped everyone the next day in the paper that Carlos Delgado was coming to the, coming to the Mets. Uh, and obviously, if you're at the New York Post at that point, 
Uh, you can't do any, now you can put the story online, but papers were what drove everything then. I mean, we were selling 700,000 copies a day. The, the Post was selling 600, 700,000 copies a day. So that's what, what drove things. Uh, can you imagine now if we found out that the Marlins were going to trade Carl Silgato to the Mets at two or three in the afternoon and we said, ah, it's all right, we're going to wait till six or seven the next morning when the paper comes out to, to try to, to break that story. I mean, people would be, Ken Rosenthal and John Heyman and whoever would be all over it in the interim. So uh, things have changed dramatically. I mean, I, I could tell stories about like the evolution, but uh, I remember when Addison Reed got traded from the Diamondbacks to the Mets and uh, I, I had the scoop pretty much. I knew the Mets and well, first I knew the Mets and Diamondbacks were going to make a trade. Uh, so the second, uh, but the second you tweet out that the Mets and Diamondbacks are close to a trade, you're putting chum in the water and you're just basically alerting all your competition that, that a trade's about to happen so that they could try to jump on it from there. Uh, and, and fortunately, I ended up breaking most of that trade, even the fact that Addison Reed was coming to, uh, to the Mets uh, at one point because people were going in circles with other names and stuff like that. But uh, I still remember Bob Nightingale, who was at USA Today at the time. I'm not sure if he's still there. He, uh, he, he, uh, he ended up getting the prospects going back the other direction. And I think the only reason he got that was because I had put all my cards on the table and, and said who was coming to the, the Mets, where if it were the 2005 example or 2003 or 2002, I would have just tried to break it in the next day's paper. And maybe the story would have held and I would have had it in the paper the next day alone. Yeah, that is that is really interesting. And yeah, I guess putting putting the chum in the water is a really interesting way to say it. Um, I do remember when Addison Reed was traded, he was incredible that year and, and the next year, if I'm not mistaken, too. And um, I'm also not a big fan of Bob Nightingale uh, for personal reasons. So I wish you got all of it, Adam. I really wish you got all of it. But it is what it is. And then you actually end up leaving the beat. As you said, you know, you were there, for, you were in, you were writing in Alabama for five years, you Daily News for 10 years, you had ESPN for seven or eight, if I'm not mistaken, as you said, and then you decide, you know what, you've had enough. So where, I, I think, it, you know, you already kind of alluded to it. ESPN pretty much like dismantled caring about baseball, which is pretty unfortunate. Um, so was that just kind of the perfect time for you to leave or was there already kind of something inside you that was like, all right, I don't really want to be on the road 170 days anymore. This, this has the potential to be a really long answer. Awesome. Can't wait. I'll go on mute if you want. Uh, 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 well, first of all, for people who followed me on Twitter over the years, they, they know my brother uh, coached a high school basketball team. And I still remember uh, that the, the year the Mets made the World Series, uh, his basketball team won a playoff game for the first time in, in 10 years in the school or the first time he had been coaching that since he had been coaching there. And uh, it was so much more pleasurable. Uh, my brother's rooting for my brother's team and watching the Mets make the world series, which sounds crazy to, to feel more passion for a high school basketball team winning than, than a, a, a major league team reaching the world series. Uh, but the, the bottom line is that I had helped scout for my brother. I had prepared game programs for my, my brother, uh, taking photos and sending them to the weekly paper. So a lot of the functions that the sports formation or athletic communications department at a college would, would do, uh, so I, I knew athletic communications working at a college in the PR department for an athletic department would be something I would really uh, enjoy. And I, I think I've been had pretty good foresight over the years in terms of evolving with technology. So uh, taking photos before people were in spring training and you could kind of sense even before ESPN formally announced it, that things were about to crumble in journalism and ESPN too was not immune from that. I think at the height from what I read, ESPN had a hundred million subscribers uh, uh, on, on through cable networks. Uh, and I think when I left, it was 87 million. So they lost 13 million subscribers at $7 a month. That's $90 million in lost revenue, not just one month, but every month going forward. And that chasm was, was growing uh, I'm meandering, but they found other ways now to try to offset that by, by the direct delivering the Disney content, Disney owns ESPN. But you, you saw that something's going to have to give and you see all the germ, all the newspapers folding or, or reducing print days. So when ESPN was, was deciding to dismantle the, the baseball coverage, I had opportunities to go back to newspapers uh, and things like that, but you have to be pragmatic and, and say, all right, if I go somewhere, what's, what's, am I going to be looking for a job two years from now again and four years uh, from now again? I mean, let's be honest. I, I, I don't know how many people are still left of the New York daily news from when I worked there, but that paper is going to cease to exist as a print publication fairly soon. And uh, yeah, the name will live on because the name has some value online, but it's, it's a skeleton staff right now. And it's going to be even more skeleton staff uh, at that point, because the ad revenue is never going to uh, allow for the kind of uh, size of a department that there was when I worked there and there are 30 sports writers. 
So uh, you have to be realistic about it. So what skill, what skills are transferable and what industries have similar skills and, and athletic communications at a, as, at a, at a college is, is, is really a similar skill set. In fact, I, when I went on interviews, I would tell people all the time that the, the skill set of a journalist is far more conducive to what athletic communications at the college is today than someone who came up through a pure athletic communications track. Because it, it used to be when, when I was young and I was a young journalist dealing with the, the SEC SIDs or, the, or the, the sports formation directors at UAB as a beat reporter, uh, it used to be that they were preparing game notes and they were uh, pitching stories to newspapers and stuff like that. Now it's all about content creation, both print content for the website, photos, uh, videos. That's all stuff I had done and I was very good at. So uh, I was more equipped, I think, than people who have been in the industry for a while. I still think I am more equipped than people in the industry. It's not boastful. It's just the, the, the skill set, I think, is more conducive to what uh, people are looking for now than, than, than people who came up through that industry. So you alluded to it a little bit, but what exactly does an assistant athletic director for strategic communications do? It's, it's a fancy title, but it's basically... <laughs> It's basically the, the PR guy uh, for the for the athletic department. So uh, and the content creation person for the department. So uh, for instance, there's still the traditional functions. Like if Newsday writes about Stony Brook University, where I am now, or the New York Times writes a feature, or Bruce Beck at NBC, or Tina Silvasio at Fox, or Sam Ryan. I'm trying to name drop as many uh, names as I can, or, or Steve Overmeyer at CBS. Uh, if, if they uh, if they if they uh, mention us on air, obviously there's a value to the amplification of the message, but we talked about the daily news used to have a, a 700,000 circulation when I was there. Now it's, it's, it's minimal. So the, the, the impact of those media outlets uh, writing about us or, or carrying stuff about us uh, is, is greatly reduced compared to what it used to be. As a result, at the same time, your ability to reach your own audience is, is increased dramatically. So basically what I do is try to, in addition to pitching stories is mostly just try to reach our audience. I reach our audience through our website and creating social media posts, uh, and, and, uh, our game broadcasts that I oversee, uh, and, and things like that. And, and, and we do a podcast, which is the same thing you're doing, but very similar to, to when I did a radio show at ESPN. Uh, and, and those are the kinds of things we, we do. So the skills are, are very, very comparable. Obviously I, I usually, when I tell people about it, like journalism classes, I, I kind of equate it to MLB.com because, yeah, it's, it's sort of journalism, but obviously it's owned by MLB. So you're not going to write about uh, the Bernie Madoff stuff in all likelihood, or, uh, or you're not going to, if someone were, God forbid, uh, like uh, in, involved with uh, some, some, that some owner was involved with, with uh, whatever, like a illicit activity, you, uh, you, you wouldn't be covering that. So you're not a, a journalist. You're, you're, tr you're trying to find the, the positive, but if the, if the Mets, if the Mets lose nine one, Anthony DeComo is not writing. Uh, I don't know. Uh, Pete Alonso homers in nine one loss. That's not the headline. You still write that they they lost. Uh, so we we find the positives where we can. But we're 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 basically journalists uh, for in in house journalists. That is uh, that's a great way of putting it. You're right. It is a very very fancy title, kind of a mouthful too. Um, but definitely you know appreciate it. And yeah, as you were saying, I mean, I don't think anyone at MLB.com is going to be saying anything bad about Rob Manfred and and how he's my words butchering the uh, Astros scandal. I think it came out yesterday or today as of recording that um, even if there's no season, they're up holding the suspensions which doesn't make any sense to me at all but that's something we don't need to dive too deep into that so you started your strategic communications career at new york institute of technology as you said you're now at stony brook um do you miss the grind of the baseball season at all uh, there, there are things I, I miss about the, the baseball season one of the things when I, when I did one of my long answers earlier I, I don't know that i i answered uh why why i wanted to get out of it and I think it was mostly the economic reality. I usually tell people that I was on the road 170 days a year for 15 years, but I mean, the current situation aside where, where travel is obviously not something you want to, you want to do. I actually enjoyed going, I got to go for free all over the place. I mean, all over the U S but then I got to go to, to Japan with the MLB all-stars one year. I got to go to, uh, uh, I'm trying to think uh, Mexico city. I mean, if I had been on the right beat, I would have got to go to London things like that. And then you have all the frequent flyer miles and hotel points to go wherever you want during the off season for free too. Uh, so, I mean, there were, and, but the thing that the change that was unhealthy about it, and I still would have stayed in, I think if it was just this, if it was not for the economic realities of journalism, 
and, and, and kind of the, the, the entire structure crumbling uh, and, and the opportunities crumbling. But uh, the thing that changed was making it not just 24 seven, but I, I mentioned that Addison Reed example with the trade where it just was literally, you have to look at your phone every second of every day because you could break a story and people could catch up, but you would, you could catch up yourself if someone else broke a story, but that means you have to be alert every second of every day to what someone else is reporting. If you put down your phone for 30 minutes or, or go work out for an hour or whatever, and John Heyman tweets in the first minute of your workout that the Mets are about to acquire somebody. Yeah. There might be someone uh, to alert you from your, from your office or whatever, but you'd think the ESPN is a behemoth thing. Uh, and the daily news was, was small by relative, but with the daily news was just cared about the Mets and Yankees during baseball season where ESPN has got a million things going on. So, there may not be some somebody alerting you. And there, there are a lot of things you want to break or catch up on that aren't like major trades and stuff like that. Someone getting called up, you would want to report that right away. And so you felt like you couldn't disappear for, uh, for an hour, two hours, because you, you wanted to be the one-stop shop that everyone trusted for all the information. That is, yeah, that uh, always being on, right? Like sometimes everybody thinks they want it until they actually have it, right? Like, you know, everyone... Um, you know, just as a, you know, just as a, um, a current example, Barstool Sports, I'm sure everybody out there who watches and, and consumes Barstool Sports is like, oh, hell yeah, I could do that. And then you look at what these, what these content creators and personalities are doing on a daily basis. And it's like, oh, well, you wanted to go out on Saturday? Well, no, you can't. You have to do, you have to work, right? And, and it's exactly the same thing as you were saying, you know, you have to always be on, always be paying attention from the time you get up to the time you go to sleep. And sometimes, you know, I hear stories, you know, just through, you know, on TV and on the radio of like waking up in the middle of the night to a story is terrifying because it's three o'clock in the morning and something happens. That means you have to then go out and figure out what the heck just happened because you can't just go back to sleep. A, it's not in your DNA, but B, it's also your job. So it's, you know, I, I, I understand that constant always being on. And, and now again, you know, with being, being essentially, as you said, the PR guy for some of these colleges, you get more enjoyment out of it. Um, so I think that's important, but you're able to leverage everything that you learned in, in your journalism life for those 15 years. So how much, how, you know, as you were saying before, you're more equipped, where does, where do the tools come from? Like, how much are you leveraging these relationships with all those names that you just dropped? How much are you leveraging, you know, your, the, the ability of always being on, or at least being able to kind of flip that switch to be on, like, how are you using the tools in your tool belt to just absolutely crush it for these colleges? Yeah, because to be honest, in the New York market, obviously professional sports are, are the dominant thing. And then you have schools like St. John's and Seton Hall that compared to NYIT. Rutgers? Yeah. Rutgers, Rutgers at all? Maybe? <laughs> are you rah-rah? <laughs> but, but obviously uh, in the pecking order uh, compared to pro sports and then, and then the, the biggest college teams in New York, uh, a school certainly like NYIT and, and even Stony Brook to a, a certain extent uh, kind of pale in, in, in comparison. So Early on, would someone have done me a favor to, to get put NYIT on the air just because I had just been removed from journalism and was really close to them? Sure. But over time, you have to be able to sell stories on, on the merits. So the good thing about being able to pitch the stories is that being a former journalist, I'm, I, one, I'm always around the teams as much as I can. So I know the players, on the, the student athletes on the different teams. Uh, so I, I know what storylines are there. And then I'm good at identifying the storylines to write for our website or to pitch uh, because that was, I was on the other end of those stories, writing them. So I, I know what stories were going to resonate with editors. So when I pitch stories, I, I think I pitched, I know who to pitch the stories to, uh, but I also have the, the right stories to, to pitch. Uh, I could speak the journalist language. So uh, from that perspective, it's, it's been, I, I've been fairly successful in terms of getting people to cover our teams, probably disproportionate to our stature in the market to, to say it in a, a nice way. Uh, but, uh, but certainly the stories, the human issue stories resonate with people or else they wouldn't do them. Yeah. And, and that's very important, especially in college athletics is the more the college's name is out there. I mean, perception's reality, right? So the more the name is out there, the bigger and more impressive it just seems. So if you can find those stories and be able to pitch them to all your friends and all your you know old colleagues to get them to write the stories, because you always, journalists journalists always want to write a story right or at least that's kind of the perception i have in the market um getting them to be able to then write those stories and just get the name of the college out there and especially if it's a good story from a, a storytelling perspective everybody wins in this case um so you could be a you know a useful tool 
you know, as I was talking about your tool belt, you're now a very useful tool to the, the coaches and the athletic directors at these schools to help just expand the brand, amplify the message, and just get more of these kids either from the city or, or in and around it to come to the school and improve the athletics. So I think that's a really um, great great opportunity you have. And it sounds like you're having some fun doing it. So I guess, you know, most of this time has been spent on you and I do appreciate your time. We do kind of have to touch upon the world, not quite spinning on its axis anymore with this downtime. Now you've only been at Stony Brook for like four months, if that, I think. And, you know, especially this last month has just been crazy and looks like the next month moving forward, if not a little bit longer, is going to be out of whack too. I guess, what are you doing in this like coronavirus downtime to take advantage of still being able to pitch these stories when you've only been there for so long, like everything's kind of just out of whack. Yeah. Our athletic director made the point to us early on and and I was of the same mindset uh, anyway, that obviously our minds are on the people who are suffering. Anthony Causey, a a good friend from New York post right now is battling coronavirus. So our hearts and and, and our thoughts are are, are there primarily, but uh, for those of us who are are healthy and and isolated right now or or self segregating or whatever the, the, the term is, uh, we could just kind of turn on our TVs and, and, and fool around and do minimal work, or we could put our nose to the grindstone and, and really separate ourselves from, from other uh, colleges and, and universities. So in terms of pitching stories, there's story ideas that, that we've had that uh, one of our, our, our starting men's lacrosse goalie is a volunteer firefighter. Uh, he drives the EMS ambulance out here on Long Island and, and Holbrook. So uh, we, we pitched that uh, story to, to people, uh, but uh, just in terms of trying to have regular content on our website, which is a challenge because there's not going to be any sports until August at the earliest at the college level. So it's a challenge, but we've had virtually every day, multiple stories on our, our website, uh, stonybrookathletics.com to, to, uh, to, to kind of keep people engaged and, and things like that. So uh, it's a, it's a challenge. We're redesigning our, our website, taking the downtime. We're designing all new graphics for next year. So uh, we're taking the downtime to kind of take a step back, pause, and, and just try to make sure when we, we get back, we, we do things better. And how much, how much time, and, and thank you for that. I mean, as, you know, as you, you know, your first point, as you said, you know, there's a lot bigger things going on in the world than sports. So it's just something we all love, of course, but that doesn't mean it's matters in the least. But at the same time, I mean, like, I guess then how much, how much time are, again, kind of more just getting acclimated with everything that's going on than all the winter sports get shut off, unfortunately, and the senior, the, the spring sports are shut down, but there's at least the opportunity for these athletes to get that extra year of eligibility. So that's going to throw everything with recruiting. In. So that's going to be very interesting next year to kind of just see how everything goes. But right now, how much time are you, like, are you allowed to reach out to the athletes? Are you allowed, like, are you reaching out to the coaches just to kind of continue to search for those stories because you're not allowed to be there in person anymore? Yeah, definitely. Our current student athletes were allowed to, to reach out to. Obviously, there's rules with respect to contacting recruits and, and high school uh, age people. In fact, it's, a, it's what's called, a, they institute what's called a dead period right now. So uh, coaches could contact them by email and, and Twitter and things like that. But uh, there's no on-campus recruiting or, or anything like that right now. So there's, there's challenges. Uh, but yeah, we're, we're just kind of searching for stories. Uh, our women's swimming coach just alerted us to a, a story because we're trying to, to, to kind of get there in that mindset where it pitched stories to us. Uh, so uh, one of our women swimmers who's from California, her father's an ER doctor, and, uh, and she has some kind of degree that's conducive to making medical masks. So uh, she's out there right now in California making medical masks. They're helping her father's hospital. So that's one of the next stories uh, we're going to do. So uh, we're, we're trying to, to do our best under the circumstances. You, you mentioned the, the student athletes who had, were spring sports semesters. The NCAA has granted them an extra year of eligibility. So essentially next year, uh, I don't know what percentage of them are going to choose to return because obviously some of them have jobs lined up. Uh, some of them may not want, may maybe graduating, may, may not want to pursue a master's degree. Some of them may not be at the same scholarship level next year as they were for the four years they were here, even though they had that extra year of eligibility. So uh, it'll be interesting times. Uh, it's going to be interesting time for athletic departments too. It's of secondary importance. But uh, if, if all those student athletes at Stony Brook come back, uh, for instance, then uh, it's entirely possible that our scholarship budget may be $500,000, $700,000 more next year than we had budgeted because you have five classes worth of student athletes as opposed to four classes worth of student athletes. So uh, that's a, a financial hit to the department at a time when we're not getting revenue. The NCA distribution, because there's no NCA tournament is, is about a quarter. I think of what it, I think was going to be about 700 million. It's going to be 225 or 250 million instead, or those are rough figures, but obviously the, 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 
huge schools who get multiple shares from that NCAA tournament are, are more dramatically affected than us, but, but everyone's going to be uh, affected by that NCAA distribution being less. So uh, people are going to have to really watch their bottom lines and be fiscally responsible going forward because the budgets are taking huge hits. And then uh, attendance wise, we don't know what it's going to look like in the, in the fall. I mean, uh, they may have sports without people in the stands who, who knows where we're going to be then uh, if it flares up again or, or doesn't peter out. So uh, there, there's a lot of issues swirling around. They're going to make things challenging for us. It's definitely going to be interesting. And I appreciate your insight um, from multiple levels. Cause I didn't even think about, you know, the, the, I just think about the athletes like, Oh, cool. They get an extra year of scholarship or they get an extra year of eligibility. And you're like, well, that might be an extra $500,000 for a school like us, which isn't, I mean, that's not a small amount of money. It's not like your Alabama football or Clemson football where they practically print money at this point. Uh, it's a little different, uh, you know, with some of these smaller schools. So that's, you know, great insight. And I appreciate that, but Adam, uh, that's about it for me, unless you have any other extra points you want to make. I mean, I, I really appreciate your time today, man. Uh, only the one thing I would say is, is I don't know how many aspiring journalists there are out there, but, uh, I left you with the impression that journalism is a tough in a tough financial state right now, but I, I still wouldn't dissuade people who want to go into that industry from, from going into that industry because there's, when I was entering in the 1990s, people were, were crying doom and gloom. There's always going to be avenues for, for people because there's always going to be a craving for information. It might be delivered totally differently. The economic model might be totally differently, but you can be entrepreneurial and create something yourself too, like your podcast. Uh, and I don't know how well you monetize it right now, but if it, gain, if it gets, uh, if it picks up uh, steam, maybe you can monetize it more. Uh, so uh, there's always going to be opportunities for people to, to provide information. So I, I wouldn't dissuade people from going into it just because the, the current model isn't working. Yeah, there's a lot of different things that uh, people can do, especially with social media and the opportunity there. And I'm not quite monetizing yet. Only started it back in January. But uh, with your help sharing it across Twitter, uh, maybe once or twice, I think uh, that opportunity is going to get a little bit louder. But I do appreciate that. And I agree, you know, people are always going to want information. It's just always it's just going to be different. You know, there's going to be another iteration that comes after the social media uh, revolution. I'm confident. I don't know what it is. Obviously, if I did, I'd be a billionaire. But you know, it's going to happen. It always does. And that's just that's just the way the world works. And yeah, I mean, and, and as you said, like, there's other things that come with it, too. You've learned so much through journalism, it now led you to what you do now, right? So don't, you know, just because it, you might not make a million dollars doing something doesn't mean you can't then pivot into a different industry or pivot to a different opportunity that can then lead you to that opportunity to make significantly more dollars. So yeah, I, I totally agree with you. Just keep do what you love. The money will figure it out itself out eventually if you work hard and, and you do the right thing. So uh, I appreciate, that's a really great note to leave it on. Adam Rubin, Associate Athletic Director for Strategic Communications at Stony Brook University. Previously, beat writer for the Mets. That's kind of where I know and love them. So Adam, really appreciate your time today, man. Well, my pleasure. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of For the Love of Sports with Adam Rubin. As I said, all around really cool dude. Really miss him from uh, his Mets days, but I think what he's doing now is pretty cool. And as he described it, makes sense why he does what he does. So thank you to him. I will make sure to give you all of his socials. Everything's in the show notes. Please give him a follow. And if you could also please give us a five-star review on iTunes, Apple, Spotify, Google Play, Google Podcasts, wherever the heck you're listening, we'd sincerely appreciate it. So thank you so much for your time. It's the only thing we don't get more of. So I appreciate you giving me some of yours and I hope you make it a wonderful day. Yes.